From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. First, it was hand sanitizer, then staying six feet apart, then masks. Now, Governor Jared Polis sees smartphones as a tool to fight the spread of COVID-19, an alert system from Google and Apple. Coloradans can opt into it on their phone later this month. It'll provide a way where you'll know if you were exposed to COVID while maintaining your privacy and data. In our regular interview with the governor, he takes our questions and yours about climate change, protests, and Colorado's economy heading into the colder months. Polis will call in during our second half hour. First, though, the founder of Black Packers, Patricia Cameron of Colorado Springs. She just did her first long-distance hike, the 485-mile Colorado Trail, how backpacking became a form of protest. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Governor Jared Polis will join us in the second half of the show live this morning answering our questions and some of yours from Twitter. But we'll begin with the idea that protests for racial justice can happen in unusual settings, like a hiking trail. Patricia Cameron of Colorado Springs is the founder of Black Packers. It's a nonprofit focused on diversifying outdoor recreation. And she just completed the 485-mile Colorado Trail, her first long-distance hike, and a way, she says, of connecting with her ancestors. She documented the experience for Backpacker magazine. It's a continental divide. I can't believe I made it. It was not easy. The hike took seven weeks. And Patricia Cameron, welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Congratulations, first off. And I wonder how your feet and legs are doing. Actually, I have an ankle fracture in my right foot that I had some point during the hike, and I hiked on it for a few weeks. So I am actually non-weight-bearing on my right foot and on crutches. Wow. (laughs) But the legs are doing great. How soon after the hike did you figure this out? Well, it started hurting. Like, it hurt during the hike, and I just kind of got used to it, took ibuprofen, tried to, you know, dunk it in cold water on the hike to kind of, like, chill it out. But when I got home, it started hurting more and more each day. And so about four days after that, I went to a doctor and they said that the adrenaline wore off from the trip. And that's when I started receiving pain signals again. Ah, adrenaline in a way was your savior. Do you see it that way? I'm sure that's the case for, you know, me, but also for anyone else who's in a situation like that. I guess our bodies have ways of protecting us in those situations. So indeed, I understand that you saw this hike as your own way of protesting. And, and I know that it was much more than that for you. But explain the connection to the protests for me and your state of mind as you hiked these many miles over these many weeks. Sure. Well, I have for years been a part of different activist communities in Colorado. I've lived in Colorado for 26 years. And I feel like um, the way I protested uh, moved away from maybe more of the in the streets protests to me founding Black Packers. And so it was always a direct line for me, creating Black Packers, trying to get people of color outdoors. Um, but definitely the hike, a through hike where you don't see much diversity. Um, indeed, I think I was the only Black person I saw out there on the trip. 
um, especially while planning the trip during the height of the civil unrest going on across the country, it felt like this was my way. So I put my head down and kind of pushed further into planning for the through hike, even though at times I really wanted to be more directly involved. Hmm. But I realized that this was my way um, in a way that I had been um, prepared for for months now to protest. Did it surprise you to see no other African-Americans? No. Like I said, I lived in Colorado for 26 years, and so I'm not not used to that. But on top of that, I know a lot of the Black um, or Indigenous or people of color who have through-hiked before. It's a small community, so we kind of know each other. And the names I can list off maybe on one hand of the Black people I know of that have through-hiked. So I wasn't surprised. What is your understanding for why that is the case, that there are so few folks of color on a trail like that? I think there's a, a variety of reasons, and this is why we talk about intersections, right? There's not just one, but what Black Packers focuses on is the economic portion and how there can be economic barriers to getting outdoors. On top of that, however, there's a lot of... Um, historical context to getting outdoors for different people and for people of color. For one, our national parks used to be segregated. It wasn't a great time for Black people. Park rangers used to uphold that segregation. Um, a lot of times when you are the only Black person in an all-white space, there's um, a lot of bullying that can happen, and it's not always just overt bullying. It can be, you know, very insidious, like, you know, one white family walking past me and my son and saying, oh, I didn't know Black people liked cold the times where I went winter camping and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of reasons Black Packers focuses on the economic parts, but I also know just how difficult it can be to be in those spaces um, and be the only Black person in them. So that incident you just relayed, uh, where you and your son were told, oh, I didn't know that Black folk liked cold weather, that, that happened to you? Yes, no. I went fishing and winter camping near the South Platte River near Decker's. And we met some people that said that to us. Did you have those kind of interactions as you were hiking the Colorado Trail? Honestly, most people were really stoked to see me out there, especially when I talked about my cause. And plenty of them were on the nose and said, you know, we don't see a lot of people like you out there. And for what that's worth, that's, you know, a not stick skinny person. I'm a woman. I'm a black woman. Um, my gear wasn't the most lightweight, so you could tell I was a rookie. Um, so, yeah, I heard that from people. But in in, that, in those circumstances, it felt more jovial than actual, like, um, um, a microaggression. So it sounds like you had the opportunity to interact with some folks and to kind of spread this message. And what what did that message sound like? And it sounds like in general it was well received. I had a spiel by the time I got to the end of it. And <laughs> I said it so many times on the trip. But I would say I'm hiking on behalf of the nonprofit I founded, and I am the executive director of Black Packers. Um, our tagline is economic equity and outdoor recreation. But I like to explain it as Black Packers meets those at the intersection of underrepresentation and economic vulnerability. Of course, that, that uh, economic reality is so much bigger than just the issue of the outdoors. And so if you address the outdoors aspect of it, you're not necessarily addressing the root causes, the underpinnings. How do you struggle with that? Well, for me, um, 
this is just my particular corner of the universe. Mm. There are plenty of people doing great work in a variety of different areas. Um, one of the places I like to always shout out is the Colorado Springs Food Rescue. Colorado Springs was recently rated as the second worst food desert in the country, and they're doing work to create food equity. And so while I'm working on the outdoors, I know plenty of local organizations that are working on the different areas. So I like to collaborate with them when possible. Um, and then use my connections in the outdoors to address the recreation part. Uh, Patricia Cameron, I mentioned in the introduction that you also saw this as a way to walk with your ancestors. Tell me about that aspect of this. It was amazing, Ryan. I There were so many times, and I said this, I also brought some women along the trip with me. So three women of color joined me on the trip the first week, and then the last week I had two women of color. Hmm. And... Um, I remember telling them that I felt like I was closer to my ancestors than I had ever been. And the best way I can describe it is it felt like they were walking with me and I was walking in my purpose. And they joined me because I had finally met them at like the junction of my purpose and my future. And it honestly felt like ancestors whose names I didn't know and even the ones I did were there. And I could feel all of them, even if I wasn't necessarily directly familiar with some of my lineage. Um, it felt like they were there with me. And that was... I guess when I felt like this is what I'm supposed to be doing when they finally came down and talked to me and joined me out there. Why do you think hiking ushered that in? Is it the quiet of hiking? Is it the beauty of hiking? Is it the novelty? For me, I think it's because that trail broke me down um, <laughs> mentally and physically. It, you know, when you're solo hiking and you can spend a whole day or a few days by yourself without seeing another person and you're camping in the wilderness by yourself, you have nothing but time to think. So outside of the fact that I'm hiking like 15 miles a day with a 30 pound pack walking directly up mountains, because this whole trail is uphill. It's just, <laughs> there's not too much downhill. Um, you're going through a mental struggle with yourself because you have to keep yourself going. Like your body can do it. It may hurt and that's fine, but you have to convince yourself to go. And on top of that, you have nothing but time to think. And during that time, being by myself, I got to some pretty dark places just with being lonely and um, kind of beating up on myself mentally and hitting walls where I wasn't sure I could get over it. And I think that was the best time um, to reconnect um, with my ancestors, who I'm sure had a very physical and mental struggle when they were stolen and brought here. Um, I could only imagine what that felt like. And I can't compare my, you know, voluntary trip on a Colorado trail like that. But um, the mental struggle that I went through, um, the pain I felt, the fear I felt, um, I feel like it connected me oh, to them. To that experience. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Patricia Cameron of Colorado Springs, founder of the nonprofit Black Packers. Her trail name, by the way, is Black Packer, and she just completed the 485-mile Colorado Trail. And speaking of of a moment that tested you, there was a harrowing experience at the end of your hike during a storm on an exposed ridge. Tell me what happened, how you made it through. Oh, goodness. Okay. <laughs> so it's called Indian Trail Ridge. It was about, it was a day before the day before my last day in Durango. And I was always one of the slowest hikers out there. I sped up to where I could get to 
near 20 mile days. But by that point, everyone else had also sped up and they were getting 30, 35 mile days. So I was always in the back of the pack. And um, I needed to get over this huge exposed section of the ridge before noon because, you know, that's when the storms roll in. And there's only one bailout point up there. Once you get past that, you're kind of committed to the ridge. It's very narrow at times. The trail was like 18 inches wide with a steep precipice on either side. So there was no place to run from storms. But as I was hiking up, I saw two huge gray clouds above me. And I kind of brushed it aside because you often see clouds, but they don't necessarily turn into storms up there. But then those two clouds kind of converged. It became a huge storm right above my head. And so when I heard that thunder crackling, which is so unique when you're that high up, it sounds like it's right in your ear. I ran to get some um, shade or some safety and some trees. And I sat there for a while. The storm got worse and worse. And I kept thinking, like, what do I do now? Like, I'm not in a great place to pitch a tent. Um, So I was really scared. But there were three backpackers who came up. And when I saw them coming down um, this small little saddle before you get to the ridge, I called out to them and I asked them if they were going to continue. And they all said yes. And then I kind of just honestly blurted out, I'm scared. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I think, the first time I said that out loud, I just, I didn't, didn't even think about it. I just blurted out, I'm scared. And they said, do you want us to stay with you or do you want to hike with us? And one of the guys said, you have a great spot there. It's super rad, but you might not like you might not be able to pitch your tent there. And so I decided to hike with them and they let me lead them. And they told me, we're not going to leave you no matter what. We're going to stay with you. You set the pace. We'll go as slow as you need. And so we hiked the last two and a half miles over that ridge through a wind, thunder, lightning and hailstorm, just getting pelted with hail and then crossing over these rocks that made up the trail, which were also wet. And the entire time, those hikers kept telling me, we won't leave you. We won't leave you. Um, and it was really beautiful. It was even now I get kind of teary eyed thinking about it. They refused to leave me on the mountain, they said. so. Wow. Did it feel good to just say, I'm scared? Like, just to admit that. Yeah. yeah. After I said it, it felt really good. Um, I can imagine. I, yeah. I didn't even think to say it. Like, it, gets, it just came out of my mouth. Like, I am petrified right now. And so it was amazing that they, you know, didn't you know use it against me or like think, think of me of less of a hiker um they just hiked behind me until we get to our camp spot that night which was taylor lake and we all camped together that night and they were amazing even one of the girls who was directly behind me it was so cute she kept asking me questions about my son so you know when you're in 10 situations like a medical worker or an emt or whoever it is talking to you will try to keep you distracted by asking you questions about yourself she just kept asking me about my son. Like, how old is he? What do you think he's doing back there at home? Can you, Are you excited to see him? Just kind of kept me distracted. You were apart, indeed, from your son for these seven weeks. And I think that might have been the longest you've ever been apart from him. So Ever. Ever. So when you reached the end of the Colorado Trail, was that a surprise? Or did you just always count on finishing? Um... You know, I wouldn't say it was a surprise. Like, I knew I had it in me. But there were plenty of times where it was so tough on me mentally, I didn't want to be there. I knew I was going to keep going regardless because the trip meant so much to me, especially with the people at home rooting me on. Like, I really didn't have a tramily or a trail family, they call it, because I was kind of one of the slowest hikers. But my trail family ended up being, like, 
Colorado and Twitter and Facebook and the people that kept me going and asking me questions on the internet and really enjoying my trip, my trip from, um, the internet. So I knew I would keep going as long as I had it in me. And apparently I would, that meant going over an ankle, ankle fracture. Oh, it's indeed. It's been about two weeks since you got off the trail, and you've gotten a lot of praise, even a shout-out from the governor. But there have been some negative reactions. Uh, Tell me just briefly about those reactions to the story on a website called Out There Colorado. Yes, so they posted about my trip and then mentioned that the governor gave me a shout-out. And from, like, the moment they posted it, for till they took it down, we took it down the next day, um... There was so many negative reactions. I was surprised. I didn't think anyone could have a negative reaction to what I did, but people were going into the hell because I called myself a black packer or because my nonprofits called back black packers that I'm the real racist. Um, black people, maybe black people just don't like to hike and um, kind of going into stereotypes of black people and using that to justify like their racism, it was really, really ugly. They didn't moderate the comments and I thought that was a failure on their part. Um, And so I advocated to get it taken down. I didn't want my story or my images on a site that was gonna let violent racist comments run rampant and eventually they did. Let's end on a different note. What do you miss most about the trail? We have just about a minute. Everything, I was so connected to nature and outdoors. I could smell the weather patterns. My circadian rhythm was amazing. Um, I could smell when a new hiker was on the trail. If somebody who was a day hiker came on the trail, I could smell them a mile away because they smelled like laundry detergent. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, com- compared to what we smelled like. Yeah. But I just miss being so connected to the world and the natural environment that I feel like I was a part of it. And coming back into a city, it feels like we've created these like encapsulated cities that are completely um, separate from the natural world. The one that we really, um, it's our birthright to sense. So it's Thanks. hard for me to be out here and see cars and hear the noise and the smells. Thanks, Patricia, so much. Patricia Cameron of Colorado Springs recently hiked the 485-mile Colorado Trail. She's the founder of Black Packers. It's Colorado Matters. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. How far should oil and gas wells be from homes and schools? Coloradans have fought about the answer for years, and now state regulators are hammering out new rules around oil and gas wells. CPR climate reporters Michael Elizabeth Sackis and Sam Brash join me to explain what's going on. Michael, you reported recently on a well that's close to a school in Weld County, and I remember you wrote about a parent who's organizing opposition to this well. Is this the type of situation that state regulators are trying to address? Yeah, and it's the type of situation that has some Coloradans upset. Bello Romero Academy Middle School is in Greeley. It's about 1,200 feet away from an oil and gas well that started production just last year. 
and the wells were drilled near Belo Romero, where most students are Latinx, after original plans to drill near a more affluent school were scrapped because parents of that majority white school pushed back against the project. The permits for these oil and gas wells were approved in 2017, and it's questionable whether they would be approved now, given the overhaul that's underway and how the state permits oil and gas development. Is there a specific distance they're considering in general between schools and new wells? Yes, if that setback rule from schools should be increased from 1,000 feet to 2,000 feet. The rule would also change setbacks from apartments and neighborhoods with more than a certain number of homes to 1,500 feet. Okay, let's talk about how we got here and what else might change with regard to how oil and gas permits get approved in Colorado. Uh, Sam, why is the state doing this now? Well, the big idea is that health and safety have to be much bigger considerations for state regulators when they deal with new permits for oil and gas wells. But they have to hammer out like what that means, how to live up to that promise, and prioritize health and safety in local communities. All that is the result of SB 181. This is a very controversial law Colorado Democrats passed And it came with a big promise from Governor Polis that the legislation could provide an escape from big statewide fights over the oil and gas industry. So the rulemaking process happening right now, I'll be the first to say it's technical, it's complicated, but the stakes here, they could not be higher, Ryan. The industry, politicians, activists, they all see it as the main venue where they're going to work out their differences. What sort of new regulations are up for debate? So, so the big one is what Michael was telling you about. It's setbacks requiring a greater distance between new wells, schools, and also apartment buildings. They're also talking about changes to how permitting works. So instead of just letting the state permit new oil and gas wells, both local governments and the state would get a say. Mm. Um, they're looking at more public input. So more people would have a claim to uh, support or oppose a new drilling project. And they're looking at uh, stricter water protections as well. Weren't bigger setbacks for oil and gas like the whole point of a 2018 ballot initiative? Yes. uh, Proposition 112 would have expanded setbacks to 2,500 feet statewide. Uh, That failed after really fierce opposition and heavy spending from the oil and gas industry. And the same companies now say the commission shouldn't touch setbacks because voters already decided it. Michael, going back to that situation at Bella Romero Academy, the Greeley Middle School near an oil and gas site, what have you heard from parents about this increased setback that's being considered? Do they want to see this? I caught up with Patricia Nelson, the mom who's fought against these wells near Bella Romero for the last few years. And Nelson says that if the rule is adopted, it's a move in the right direction. But she isn't happy to know that the rule might include a way for oil and gas companies to apply to get around the 2,000-foot setback. Nelson also feels Colorado should be generally moving away from oil and gas instead of arguing over where these new operations should be put. Is 2,000 feet some kind of scientifically important number? Is there a, a safe distance? They picked the 2,000-foot setback in part because of a state study that found health impacts can be found within 2,000 feet. Uh, And what kind of health impacts? Well, they said it's in rare scenarios where conditions are just right that people could experience things like headaches, dizziness, and respiratory issues. And of course, the oil and gas industry has argued in these hearings that improving technology minimizes any health impacts. The industry wants to see the setbacks stay right where they are right now. When can we expect to see the commissioners make decisions on these setbacks and, you know, everything else? 
I mean, it looks like these hearings could take weeks more, if not months more. Um, But I think it's pretty fair to say that, you know, in a few months, how Colorado deals with oil and gas wells is going to look completely different. CPR climate reporters Sam Brash and Michael Elizabeth Sackis. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with Governor Jared Polis joining us live this morning. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. CPR News wants to help voters set the agenda in this election year. I'm News Director Rachel Estabrook, and we're shaping our coverage of the 2020 election with your help. What do you want candidates to address as they compete for your vote? And how has the pandemic changed or solidified your political opinions? Fill out a short survey online about what matters to you this election year. Find the survey at CPR.org slash Colorado 2020. Colorado is six months into the pandemic and a few weeks into a school year unlike any other. We've also seen a summer of racial unrest, joblessness, all while a big election looms. It's against that backdrop. Governor Jared Polis joins us once again for our regular conversation. Hello, Governor. And you forgot to mention early September snow, which is very rare in our state. Indeed, and quite the plummet of temperatures. Uh, Governor, schools and colleges are operating in very different ways across the state, but they're all managing uncertainty, it's safe to say. I understand you're announcing a new program this morning that will help. It's called RISE. Uh, Briefly, what is it? How is it going to help? Sure. Well, I've been I've been visiting schools across the state that are back. I've been to Cherry Creek and Patriot Elementary in Fort Carson and Center in the San Luis Valley. I'll be in the Eastern Plains. It's great to see kids going back to school in a safe way. Um, and I've been impressed with what I've seen so far. What we're doing with the Rise Education Fund is we're using some of the uh, the CARES Act money, the federal money the state got, about thirty two million dollars, to get it out to the school the the school districts, the charter schools, the the neighborhood schools, the community colleges that need it the most. There was a, a, a big formulaic piece of funding, Ryan, in, in the CARES Act. Thank goodness we were able to send it out to community colleges and school districts. But it went to everybody equally, and that's important because they needed to meet their budgets. But with this $32 million, we're really looking for high-impact investments in the school the schools that have really been hardest hit, generally by the economic and health impacts of COVID, meaning areas that have higher unemployment. It hit the service industry hard. Uh, it, Districts and schools can apply by October 17th, and they can get grants of uh, anywhere from a quarter million up to $4 million to really fund transformative uh, changes in in what they do, meaning it could be a dual and concurrent enrollment program where, uh, along with a high school degree, you get an associate's degree in in trade that gives you the ability to earn a living. It could be uh, early literacy programs in an elementary school, extending the learning day by an hour for kids who need it the most. So all these kinds of ideas, the ideas are there. And the state wants to partner by providing some of the funding uh, out of this federal relief bill. So we're really excited about this RISE uh, program. It stands for Response, Innovation, and Student Equity Education Fund. And we look forward to really getting that out and making a difference for kids. You are hearing that here first on CPR News, $32 million. And you, you cited a few examples there of how it might support districts in places where people are really struggling uh, early literacy, for example, uh, do I hear in that a concern that the achievement gaps that existed before the pandemic you think might be exacerbated because of the pandemic? You do. You look at, of course, both the health impact of the pandemic, who is hospitalized, 
who has lost their lives. Uh, it skews towards the, those Coloradans who work in, in essential jobs, often hourly jobs that had no choice but to be exposed and, and are not able to telecommute. Uh, and in addition, that's where the economic impact is, too. Um, of course, people in all income brackets have uh, have a higher unemployment rate than before. But the biggest change, uh, Ryan, is, is the unemployment we're seeing in the in the hourly worker economy, uh, just with the hit to tourism, less people we have. Well, we're doing better than many other states. We have tourism, certainly not the normal level that we have, hospitality industry, et cetera. Speaking of, what do you think right now of the negotiations in Washington around a stimulus package? Well, it's key that they they get it done, you know, and it's it's frustrating to see when when things are caught up between um, uh, the negotiators. I mean, I think the uh, you know there's a number of elements they're debating, but I think the general parameters they've agreed on. I mean, I think there's going to be some element of unemployment insurance, some element of funding for testing and and, and vaccine distribution. Some elements to support schools uh, safely returning. Uh, they just have to finish negotiating the exact amounts and get it done. I, I, I was more hopeful before. I, I think, frankly, at this point, Ryan, I, I still think it's likely, but I think it'll either be the, the, the what we call the lame duck session, meaning after the election in December, or it could be the new session of Congress in January. But I'm still optimistic that the federal government will come through in the time of need uh, across the country. Let's talk about a new system for contact tracing using smartphones, Apple and Android involved. Um, In layman's terms, when there's a gathering, let's say for coffee or a business meeting, people's phones will exchange little bits of information. And my understanding is that if one of those people later tests positive for COVID, an anonymous notification goes out to the folks that they've been in contact with. Uh, In announcing this, You stressed that the system doesn't track location or share identities. You know, but tech companies have promised privacy before. Speak to folks trying to decide whether it's worth the risk to track COVID this way. Well, look. I mean, you 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 tr- already trust your 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 iPhone or your Android with with every bit of personal information you have, and uh, this this is actually we've looked at the architecture. It doesn't know who you are. Or, or, or where you are. It's strictly anonymous. It simply will exchange a bit where if a phone that you were near, uh, that person is contracts COVID, you would then get an alert system. This is key in really amplifying our ability to fight and contain this virus and, and, and Coloradans, you know, being able to enjoy themselves more. It's been very a similar system, very effective in South Korea. Uh, they had it from day one. They had it built because they had it built for previous um, uh, contagions that they face. So they launched it. And, and I mean, my, my goodness, they've had just a teeny fraction of the caseload and, and death and, and misery and economic damage that we've had. So uh, it took a while to get it right because we wanted to make sure the architecture was sound, uh, was anonymous, and uh, provided no ability to either sell or market or even have uh, information about who you are, where you are, and, and and they were able to deliver on that architecture. And so we're excited that it'll be part of the regular iPhone update. You can turn it on; it's opt-in. Uh, it'll be an Android app, and and the more people use it, the the more we can get back to normal sooner. Jefferson County is suing the Bandemir Speedway over last week's Stop the COVID Chaos rally. Uh, most attendees were maskless; people didn't keep their distance, and it violated the county's event size limit. Other groups and business owners have protested some of the rules around crowd size, social distancing and masks. There's talk on social media of a possible demonstration from a different group next week. 
Meanwhile, you announced that the Broncos will be allowed to have fans in the stands, 5,700 people, at their September 27th game against Tampa. And I wonder if that is sending a conflicting message. You know, big crowds can't gather at a raceway, but they're welcome at a football stadium in the middle of a city. Well, it's it's all about it's all about how it's done. The Broncos uh, put together a strong operational plan, where effectively they're having pods uh, of 175 people each, consistent with the outdoor guidance, uh, separate restrooms, separate entry facilities. The key thing in avoiding super spreader events is really twofold, Ryan. One, it's to have uh, the the number at a level where you can do contact tracing and notification if there's a case. That's why the pods, that's why the 175, you you simply can't do it if you had 3,000 or 4,000 people all together. You don't know who was exposed to who. You can do it in smaller units, um, and then if people were exposed, they can enter a quarantine to help control uh, the virus. And then the second is just the social distancing methodology and the implementation of that, making sure that this is a reasonably safe environment. If it wasn't, uh, the Broncos certainly don't want to put their fans at risk, and, uh, and and they took that very seriously. So it's about how to do these things. It's not about, you know, it's not about how to move backwards or, or or avoid things. It's about how do we figure out in this pandemic how we how we go about our lives and have fulfilling lives in a reasonably safe way without allowing the virus to destroy our economy or our lives. You know, I've got to say, listening to your press conference in which you announced this Broncos arrangement. I mean, you really sounded like an advertisement for the Broncos, and I don't want to take anything away from Broncos country by any means, but are the Broncos getting special treatment here, being able to kind of negotiate directly with your administration? No, what the Broncos are doing is they're really leading the way. They have the organizational wherewithal, the values, the ability to execute. So they are uh, really showing the way that will allow the state to have more of these larger scale events. I know there's also uh, working with a motorway on, on what an event might look like, the Rockies when they're ready to go and Major League Baseball's ready to go, large concert venues. There's been many outdoor uh, concerts over summer, but how do we, in a safe way, uh, return to some of those larger venues with this pod concept and the social distancing? So, uh, you know, the, the Broncos, to their credit, said, you know what, we're we're willing to to take uh, some of that risk. We're willing to figure out how to have fans back. We want our Orange Nation fans to be there. And so it's really been groundbreaking to help figure out how we can do that in a reasonably safe way with them. And uh, a lot of other, uh, we'll have a lot of learning from that that will apply to, to others across the state. Okay. So you think that that's applicable elsewhere. Uh, Governor, I do want to get your outlook on Colorado's economy over the next few months. You talked about the uncertainty of a stimulus package out of Washington, exactly when that would come and what it would look like. Meanwhile, restaurants and other businesses you know, already operating at reduced capacity are now looking at the colder months and whether they can make it through without patios open every day. Um, The flexibility that warm weather provides is fading. Are you braced for a further winter slump? Well, winter is on our minds with the weather the last day or two, but we we generally do have a very, very good weather, uh, September and October. So we're we're certainly looking forward to two months where, uh, you know, the outdoor dining works and and, and we're able to do that in a safe way. As you get into November and especially December, uh, it gets harder. And and we're working closely with, with restaurants and the hospitality industry across the state to figure out what a safe experience looks like. 
that one wouldn't lead to a step back. You look at some states like Arizona and others where they had to move back. They they went to you know twenty five percent capacity. California closed you know in restaurant dining. We 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 want to move forward, right? How do we do more, uh, not backwards? And it's that's why we have the best data, kind of the best science guiding the decisions, and we're working with restaurants to figure out what that experience looks like for winter, but we're also grateful that Colorado, today accepted, has a wonderful September and October weather for dining out. Let me go to that fundamental question, whether you think there's going to be a heavier economic blow come winter. Well, I, look, um, well, you know, this is, a, this is a global recession caused by the pandemic, uh, America is, is really taking the brunt of it. it, has one of the worst health responses of, of any nation, uh, most, most deaths per, per capita. Um, and, and Colorado is no exception to that, but we're doing better than, than men. We have a lower unemployment rate. We're seeing less damage to our economy. We successfully pulled off a good summer tourism season, uh, much better than we thought in the mountain areas. Uh, we have telecommuting, which is much safer working for the folks who can do that. And those who have to go in are taking the precautions like mask wearing, hand washing, uh, gloves, depending on what they what they do. So because of those precautions, um, our economy is doing a bit better, lower unemployment, uh, less hit. And, and we have to keep it. I mean, look, the economy, it flows out of, of, of where you are in the pandemic. And the states that have been hardest hit by the pandemic, have their economy hardest hit. And so we want to avoid that in Colorado. And to do that, we need to continue to wear masks, avoid large gatherings, and just be thoughtful and careful and smart in the weeks and months ahead. What are you hearing about the potential for a vaccine? And I wonder how you would determine whether to take it. And I ask this, of course, with the news of the AstraZeneca trials being put on hold well, uh, you know, I, I think that the likely time frame uh, for when a vaccine can be proven safe and effective is, effective is hopefully by the end of the year. There's, there's a number of them being tested. The reason there's so much uncertainty and people speculate is nobody knows. Are, are five of the, you know, 80 being tested going to work or three of them going to work or none of them going to work or 30 of them going to work? Um, and obviously, the, the more effective we have a vaccine, the better. And then the second piece is how quickly can you gear up production? Um, the federal government did something very smart. They contracted early for the production of 100 million doses of several of these uh, vaccines that are being tested. Now, if none of those work, the, that'll be wasted. But if one or two of them work, we could have as many as 100 million doses by January, which would be wonderful. That makes uh, it's enough dosage to effectively uh, alter the trajectory of the virus, depending on the efficacy of the vaccine, hopefully in the 80, 90 percent range. Of course, I do agree with the FDA commissioner who said they will release it if it's more than 50 percent effective uh, as well, as well as, of course, not not causing any uh, bad health effects. Would you take that vaccine if it were 52 percent? Sure. I, I, I get my flu vaccine every year. That's about 50 percent. Um, actually, I, I shouldn't say I get it every year. I got it last year. I'm definitely getting it this year. I encourage everybody to get the flu vaccine. Like most people, I, of course, missed years with my flu vaccine. But yes, I uh, absolutely. Uh, that, that degree of protection is important for yourself to reduce your risk of getting it. But it's also important if we can do it across broader society, if we get enough people that, uh, that, that are vaccinated, it will crush the virus and allow us to return to normal. You mentioned the federal government there. Speaking of, President Trump right now positioning himself as the law and order candidate in the presidential race. Um, in accepting his party's nomination last month, he mentioned police misconduct, but he also warned against, quoting here, mob rule. And he has called out mayors in some cities for failing to control protests. 
Are you concerned, Governor Polis, that the continuing confrontations could strengthen Mr. Trump? Well, I mean, I think he's he's presiding over this chaos. I mean, we didn't have, you know, riots and destruction under President Obama or President Bush. I mean, this is Trump's America, the lawlessness, the chaos, uh, the destruction of property. Uh, even people have been shot at some of these. And I think the president needs to look himself in the mirror and say, hey, uh, uh, not that he's going to Ryan, but he, he should. An effective leader should look himself in the mirror and say, hey, is there anything that I'm saying or doing? that is contributing uh, to this national chaos and lawlessness. And I think most Americans believe there is, uh, which is why I think Joe Biden, uh, the law and order candidate, is going to win this November. Have you been enough of a leader on this issue in Colorado in easing tensions, in addressing tensions? Well, I, you know, try every day. I I think certainly I've done my best not to inflame things. That's, you know, number one directive is do no harm. Uh, Second is to listen. And I've had groups in and I try to understand and listen. And what are people frustrated about? What can we do? Colorado passed a landmark police reform bill, which was the right thing to do. Um, I think it not only spoke to the moment, it spoke to longstanding frustrations in communities of color with treatment by police. We banned chokeholds. Uh, every officer will have a video cam that has to be on. Uh, we established civil liability for, for law enforcement, really leading the way bipartisan bill, uh, almost, un- almost uh, unanimous. Uh, Democrats and Republicans came together. I was proud to sign it. So, look, we're taking action. We're listening. And we're not stoking the, the, the flames of hate. Uh, Governor, you made action on climate change a hallmark of your administration, but you are getting some criticism from, you know, what would seem like your home team. Um, Two environmental groups have sued you for failing to meet a July 1st deadline to set new rules aimed at cutting greenhouse gas emissions. There are complaints that your recent appointment to the Air Quality Commission may have ties to the oil and gas industry. I'd like you to talk to people who see Colorado's recent wildfires, for instance, and say, you know, the governor's got to push faster here. Yeah, and, and uh, the wildfires, which, you know, we currently have five major ones in the state. Pine Gulf's largest in our history, 139,000 acres. Cameron Peak now over 100,000 acres, right. Ryan, only 4% contained. That's the one that generally in the, in the, in the metro area you've been, you've been smelling and, and seeing visually the, the ash and pollution in the air. Uh, absolutely the longer hotter, drier summer seasons are resulting in increased fire risk. The other issue that's affecting our water, I was in the San Luis Valley recently talking about some of the watershed issues and hearing from farmers about what ag even looks like uh, in in this new era. So that's why we want to lead the way in taking bold action on climate. Our goal of 100% renewable energy by 2040, well on our way. A lot of our largest utilities, Excel, already locked in 80% by 2030. Working with Tri-State, Colorado Springs Utility accelerated the retirement of their Drake uh, coal plant. So we're moving, uh, you know, and and of course, you know, it's the job of these advocacy organizations to push you to move even even faster. No, no, no problem there. And and that's just what they do. And and they wouldn't be doing their job if they weren't pushing as as fast as they can. But we're we're moving forward. Uh, We need cleaner air. We need to do our part on climate. And Colorado wants to be positioned to benefit from the good green jobs of the future. Uh, You look at the uh, Pueblo steel plant, Everest steel plant, uh, largest behind the meter solar facility in the entire country going in there. And Everest is investing in um, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, actually, in a brand new plant, thousands of of high quality steel jobs that are going to stay in Pueblo, uh, in part because of this investment in renewable energy. 
You know, our transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner has noted that uh, many more people are driving than earlier in the pandemic and more um, folks are avoiding transit. certain workers who either aren't going in or are driving instead. Just briefly in a few moments, do you think that COVID-19 is having an effect that way on some of Colorado's climate goals? You know, I I think that what we learn from the pandemic uh, will will provide new tools in combating climate change. What I mean by that is, uh, I don't know if if you're telecommuting today, Ryan, but um, but I am. And in fact, about 70 percent of the state government is. Um, and we found, like many private sector companies, that folks can do their job effectively from home in many cases. Now, we, we know that there's value in being together and folks are, of course, going to come back when the pandemic's over. But I think this new normal uh, for many state employees, of course, telecommuting a couple days a week, no problem if you can meet the productivity goals. Oh. Same with the private sector. Company after company that I hear from says, you know what? We learned that we can have you know, 50% telecommuting. We can reduce our office space overhead, save money on leases, increase employee morale and retention. And so I, I'm confident that that will emerge out of this, this devastation as a positive improvement for humanity, and it'll reduce traffic and and improve air quality in Colorado. Although the question of its impact on traffic, I suppose, is itself questionable, given the patterns we're seeing right now. You know, this fall's ballot is a doozy, Governor, 11 statewide measures. Uh, We know you support the nicotine tax that includes vaping products for the first time. You signed the national popular vote measure, which would require that Colorado's electoral college votes go to the candidate who wins the national popular vote. I wonder if we could do like a yes, no round on a few of these and maybe get into some detail on a couple. Uh, First, the yes. We probably can, Ryan, but I think we'll have to do that a little closer to the election because we're we're just evaluating these and looking at these. um, And obviously the ones that I had something to do with, meaning I signed them, was involved, as you indicated. Uh, I'm I'm supportive of, but yeah, there's there's a number of them. I think we're we're just going to begin going through them, and I'm sure you and I will, will do some sort of election special at some point, and we'll be happy to talk about them. Okay, wait, do I hear you shutting me down on this right now? In other words, you you don't want to answer yes or no questions on the ballots at this point. Well, if you want, I mean, again, like most Coloradans, I'm going to look at the ballot, and, and, and of course, I'll have opinions on many of them, and I'll be happy to share them. But it'll be, uh, as I said, it'll be closer to the election. Um, I haven't I haven't read through uh, all of those ballot initiatives that people have put on there yet. Okay. Any preliminary thought on the gray wolves? Have you looked at that one? Well, from an implementation standpoint, there was some discussion in the legislature about a sort of a compromise plan that um, that Senator Donovan had been working on, uh, where it would pull together the conservation community and some ranchers to try to find a new way. Uh, from our perspective, we want to make sure that. Uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife is well situated to honor the will of the people. If that uh, were to pass, if it, if it is, if it doesn't pass, we need to make sure that we have protections for uh, the gray wolf in Colorado. We've done other um, uh, reintroductions successfully, and I say we; it predates me. It's not. I mean, we as in Parks and Wildlife is in the state. Uh, black-footed ferret, Canadian lynx. Uh, real, real success stories in our state. And so I think what's important is if the voters were to pass this, that Parks and Wildlife is able to implement it successfully. So we'll go into greater depth at another time. I do want to ask you about the reduction of the state income tax, that measure. The Colorado Sun recently reported that you spoke favorably about that, quoting here, particularly in this challenging time, I think Coloradans certainly need tax relief. Uh, Could you say here today how... You would vote on that ballot measure? 
Well, you know, tax relief is very important. It's, uh, cutting the income tax has certainly been one of our top goals from, from day one. We, we don't want to do it in a way that costs any revenue to the state. What, what my goal is is to eliminate tax loopholes that benefit lobbyists, the well-connected, big corporations, and then make sure that at least some of that benefit, if not most of it, is reflected in just a lower income tax rate for everybody. So this initiative could be part of that, meaning it could be the income tax piece, but it leaves the work ahead of how do we pay for it, meaning how do we reduce dollar for dollar the uh, loopholes and giveaways to big corporations and the well-connected to make sure that if we're giving ourselves a tax cut, that it's not costing money for our schools or our roads or any of our other important public priorities. Ah, okay. I mean, according to The Sun, estimates show that this tax cut would reduce state revenue by $300 million over the next two fiscal years. So I think what I hear you saying is that you wouldn't want to see this pass in a vacuum. Other action would be necessary, what, I guess by the legislature? Yeah, well, we'd have to we'd find that three hundred. I, I think we could find it, but that, that we'd have to exactly find three. And I think we could find more than that. Frankly, I, there's about uh, two billion dollars in loopholes and tax expenditures uh, that go to special interests uh, because of you know whether they were put in a year ago or a hundred years ago, and we have sort of declared war on these because we think that you're paying too much uh, because others aren't paying enough. Uh, simply because they've gotten loopholes and, and uh, special interest considerations. So we want to close a lot of those and reflect that in a lower income tax rate for every Colorado. Uh, which would be an effort in concert with. Uh, okay, we have less than a minute, Governor. A bit of a mood change to wrap. You tweeted recently about a sandwich you ate, peanut butter, banana, honey, and Pueblo chili. Uh, one of our Twitter followers, Danny Churchill, wanted to ask you, what the hell was he thinking with that sandwich <laughs> in about 30 hey, seconds? Don't knock, don't knock it until you try it. Um, I mean, I, I think, first of all, Pueblo chili is good on everything and anything. But uh, I particularly recommend it with banana, peanut butter and honey on a, a whole wheat uh, bun. And, and uh, don't knock it till you try it. Try it. Positively Presleyan of you. Elvis-like. Um, thanks so much for being with us, Governor. We appreciate your time and we look forward to chatting again. Thank you, Ryan. Take care. That is Colorado's Governor, Democrat Jared Polis. Thanks for spending time with us today. You can follow the show on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner, and we are CPR News on Facebook. 